The following audio message is from Neighborhood Church in Overland Park, Kansas. At Neighborhood Church, we seek to be a community that loves God and our neighbors together. If you would like to learn more about Neighborhood Church, please go to www.neighborhoodchurchop.com. Uh, before we get started this morning in our, uh, in our series, let me pray that God's Spirit will help us better understand His Word. Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and sending your spirit. And spirit, we ask that you would help us understand your word today as you are, uh, you are active and you are active through your word. And you want us to know your heart and the heart of the Father to be glorified and be known and enjoyed. And you want to send us on mission as well. And Father, I pray this morning that you would you would move our hearts. You would put a, a, that softness in our heart to care for those that are far from you. It's in your name. Amen. So t- two weeks ago, uh, we started our series entitled Life on Mission. And I thought it was appropriate to begin with what's God's mission. So uh, we talked about the mission of God. And we read through a dozen passages or so. And, and we saw this common thread that repeats throughout Scripture. And it was God's mission is to be glorified, and that is through being known and enjoyed. So this existence we experience has been created by God for God. And if you were in a neighborhood group this last week, you probably had lots of discussion about the glory of God and, and these things. It was a fantastic discussion as we talk about God being this all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-loving creator. Um, that, that wants to be known and enjoyed and what that looks like and this ongoing discussion that we'll continuously have in our discipleship groups and our neighborhood groups throughout the semester um, is the foundation for what we're going to be talking about today as he pursues for his honor and our satisfaction. So from the beginning, as men and women, what we talked about this last week some, right? Uh, we recognize our unworthiness next to this great God, this almighty creator, right? And what do we do? We hide. And then God, because we're hiding, he is the seeker. He's the one seeking and pursuing and preserving this relationship. Well, why is God doing that? If there's these faulty humans and God is perfect over here, why is that? Well, it's somehow in his image-bearing humans that he wants to make sure that he is known and enjoyed and then, of course, glorified in that. So as people... We get this, right? We get this idea of what it means to truly be known and to truly be enjoyed by another person, right? Our relationships are a microcosm, right? We see this, that we are made in the image of God, and we see um, this in our relationships, say, with our mom, our mom and dad, right? Take, take your, wherever you're at in your life with your mother and father, or if they've passed on, picture them when you're, when you're spending time with them. You want to be known by your mom and dad. You want your mom and dad to come and find out who you are, and when they find out who you are, they want to, you want them to enjoy that relationship, not to be something they're forced into, but something that they enjoy. That makes sense, and even think about our spouses, right? Think about your spouse. You, you want your spouse to, like, want to know you, right? And, and if they don't, you can kind of feel that's kind of broken. Or you want your spouse to enjoy you, right? And when they don't, that you're like, that's kind of broken. And we want healthy relationships when those things are broken. We want to forgive and reconcile and make things right. 
These all things, these make sense to us as people because relationships are important to us. Relationships is why we were designed. So when we think about God wanting to be known and enjoyed, we can also see our marriage as this microcosm of God and his church. God wanting to be known and enjoyed by his people. And that's when it's the most healthy relationship with God, right? Just like it's healthy in our marriages. As I shared last week, there's a big difference, though, in that tiny analogy between us understanding one another or our spouses or our parents. And the big difference is, is that we, as people, cannot offer the kind, of sacri- uh, the, this kind of satisfaction that God offers the church or God offers his children. We cannot do that for one another. God is perfectly loving and will always forgive and put sins as far as the east is from the west. And I have not figured out how to do that as a husband yet. But I'm trying. I'm trying. But we have a God who's that loving and cares that much that we can know a God that is that forgiving. When we see God as a rule giver or someone that we are scared of or we want to stay away from, that's broken religiosity, right? He wants to be freely enjoyed by people who understand the sacrifice that he has already given to us to prove to us that he has love for us. And that's where the true relationship between man and God is. So this is theology, right? This is some complex things that maybe each week we don't talk about here at our church. But as we go through this, this uh, theme, this, this topic, this semester, I want you to stay there with me from week to week. This idea that we have a loving God who's pursuing and caring and wants to be known and enjoyed by us. It is the foundation for all that we're going to be talking about throughout the semester. He does the work. We get the joy. And in this process, he is glorified. He's lifted up. His worth and his value are put on display. We had this discussion in our neighborhood group, and maybe you did as well in yours. Like, what does this idea mean to, be, to glorify something? And we'll just... Say, for example, the Chiefs, just for some random reason. So the Chiefs might score a touchdown today, right? And if you have an outfit on or you're going for the Chiefs, you may not need to be taught, okay, um, okay, now, now bend your knees straight, stand up out of your couch, raise your hands up, and just scream. You may not need to be taught that. Why? Because that's a free response to something that you love a lot, or you are happy that happened in that experience. That is a free response of joy and gratitude for Kelsey doing the thing he does, right? That's what you get to do. You don't need to be taught that. You don't need to be taught to glorify a touchdown when it's your team's touchdown, right? right? You don't need to be taught that. Because there's something inside us that we know how to celebrate things that we love and enjoy. And for God, he wants to be loved and enjoyed freely. To where there's something inside you. When God does something wonderful, you don't have to be taught how to respond. You just shout, stand up, be as big as possible to say, look what God did. He's amazing. 
To glorify something does not make it more pretty. When the Chiefs score a touchdown, it does not matter how many hats and face masks and weird outfits that you're wearing. You did not help, okay? They did that, right? But there's something special about a God that we cannot make more pretty, more beautiful, more wonderful, more loving. We can't do that. We don't shine him up for other people. What we do is we point to him. We cheer for him. That is glorification. When we know and enjoy God, we are pointing the world to our creator. And as followers of Jesus, we are his connecting agents between God and those that are enemies of God currently. God has not chosen, you guys, to send Jesus every 50 years to personally come down and do the thing he does. He's chosen not to do that. Jesus came once, and Jesus sent his spirit. And now the church gets to be the acting agent of that spirit. As the spirit works through us, we get to be Jesus to the whole world as we make disciples. We are to live out the incarnational presence as the church of God, where we live, where we work, and where we play. And that's what life on mission is all about and what we'll be talking about today. And we're going to begin with an Old Testament passage and end with a New Testament passage to see how this continues through the Scripture. So we'll be looking at Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to have a Bible, we have black Bibles around on the floors and on the chairs. Uh, we'll also have the, the passage up on the screen behind me. But while you're turning there, let me give you a little context of Jeremiah. We haven't preached a lot through the Old Testament on Sunday mornings. There's a lot there. Um, but Jeremiah is a prophet. He's, he's a major prophet. It's a long book, right? And there's a very catastrophic time in history where Jeremiah was called by God to be the prophet. That means the voice of God to God's people and to the world. So through, you may remember Saul and David, these first kings of Israel. Remember that whole David and Goliath incident? Like, like that's Saul and David and these first kings. So picture generation of generation after kings happening in Israel and go to the end of that era the end of the kings of Israel. So the last five kings that were Israelite kings, so the opposite bookend of Saul and David, we have some kings that were doing some pretty horrendous things, like human sacrifices to like false gods type of things. So God, in his desire to glorify himself, it was time to discipline his people. Okay? It was time to say, okay, Israel, you're not doing the kind of things you should be doing to point the world to me. Does that make sense? So, Jeremiah's task was to communicate this information to the people. You talk about a guy with a pretty hard calling. So, Jeremiah's task is to tell the Israelites, God is about to judge you. And how is that? Well, this discipline and punishment would come in hopes that the people would turn, but this is what it looked like. God had them conquered by the Babylonians. That's some discipline, 
right there. So the Babylonians, this empire, came and took over and captured the Israelites and took them away as captives and to Babylon. So we use this word exile in the Old Testament. So the Israelites were in exile. They were in a foreign and idolatrous, idolatrous land. And some false prophets had even come to the people while they were in exile and said, hey guys, don't worry. God's not going to keep us here very long, right? Pretty soon, uh, God's going to come and he's going to let us go back home. This is where Jeremiah is told something by God. Let's read this in Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So point number one today, God's mission involves his citizens in cities. God's mission involves his citizens in cities. So clearly God had a different perspective than these false prophets. He wasn't saying, yeah, I'll be taken care of here pretty soon. He's like, no, you just probably need to multiply there. You're going to be there a while. So number one, we find this in this first point, that he is a loving disciplinarian. God is engaging through Jeremiah and talking to them and telling them what's going to happen and walking them through their punishment. And as a parent in the room, kids, you should hear this too as well, the goal of all healthy discipline, what? Is for heart change, Right? It's for mind change. It's not for, it's not for utter destruction. It's so that you can develop and get better. And this is God's act to do this for Israel. He wants them to come back to him. Remember how they were acting, those last five kings? Worshiping false idols, not worshiping the tr one true God? He's saying to them, come back to me. You've forgotten me. Reconnect our relationship. So the second thing under this first point, God is their God. The God of Israel. This is their identity. God has not forsaken them. They're in exile, but they're still his. That's good news, right? Maybe right now you're in a season where you feel like God's kind of like teaching you something, right? We can learn from this. Well, you're still God's. God is teaching you something. And thirdly, under this point, God has sent them to Babylon. You see that? God is the one that's the active agent in this passage. Not Nebuchadnezzar. God is sovereign and can even use kings and kingdoms for his own purposes. That's the kind of God that is your father. That's a God that we can worship and celebrate. In verse 5, we see that there's also not just God's mission and who God is, but he cares about the people, the city, and the welfare of the city. We learn, even during their punishment, 
God has given them a purpose. And this is key for today's passage today. He wants them to seek the welfare of the city. And this, this idea of seeking the welfare, like what their welfare is, it's this word shalom, which is this, this wholeness, this all parts of their lives would have peace. There would be, it would be beneficial. It would be healthy. It would be good. When you're in that city, there will be this peace, that happiness would reside. And for many of the Israelites, they would be born in exile. They would marry in exile. They will have their children, and they will die all in exile. Remember, these are the very enemies. These families that are they're growing up, they're growing up among their enemies and the enemies of God. So the welfare of the Israelites and the enemies, they were bound together. Friends, the Israelites, the people of God, and the people against God, they were bound together. Do you feel that in your community? God was calling the Israelites to something radically different than maybe that's ever been experienced. Not to be defensive against, isolated from, or absorbed into that culture, but to be incarnated within it. So what's this message? How do they do this? How do they seek the welfare of the city? What are these things? Well, they're, they're ordinary things. We read, build houses. Live in those houses that you build. Plant some gardens. Eat the food from them. Have kids. Marry your children so that they can have children. Seek the welfare of the city and pray for it. So how do we do ordinary things in our city? for God. I'm going to use this phrase, kingdom citizens, because kingdom citizens helps us connect ourselves with the Israelites in exile. So the kingdom of God blesses communities. By kingdom citizens, a follower of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, living out God-honoring lives where we live, where we work, where we play. Neighborhoods, schools, workplaces. People of this world will experience God because kingdom citizens live alongside them. The current enemies of God could be future citizens of God. Over the next couple of months, we're going to be zooming in on each environment and kind of working on our own personal ministries, thinking, how can I live as a kingdom citizen on my street or at my workplace or within my family? My hope is that as you come to church, as you come these next few weeks to Neighborhood Church, that you'll come ready to learn and maybe develop as a kingdom citizen where you walk, where you drive, where you sleep, there's a satisfaction for those kingdom citizens knowing that our king is victorious. He will be victorious. We're not hoping that he will win this in the end. We can give that away. And as we shift to the New Testament, we're going to see maybe how this applies to us as the church. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 is where we're going next. 1 Peter 2, 
9 through 12 in the New Testament. So Peter is writing a letter to churches in Asia Minor. It's, it's uh, modern-day Turkey. Christians in this region were being persecuted for their faith, and Peter wanted to encourage this new Gentile church, this, this idea of these scattered believers, right, who are feeling like aliens and strangers where they live because they're kingdom citizens amongst those in the world. He wanted them to stand strong and endure suffering and distress while there's evil all around them. So let's read 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God's people have a mission from the Old Testament to the New. And we've been assigned His mission for God to be glorified by being known and enjoyed. So point number two today, God's mission continues in the church. God's mission continues in the church. We see here in this passage where God and his power and sovereignty have acted for his mission. These people have been chosen by God for his possession called you out of darkness into marvelous light. God, the giver of mercy, changes people's citizenship. Once not a people, and now a people. Peter wants to encourage them of their new identity and remind them that it was all God at work in their lives. It wasn't, it wasn't just them. They had a God who was pursuing and seeking them. Once enemies, but now kingdom citizens. God is still active for his mission. Point number three, kingdom citizens are in exile. Just like the people of God in the days of Jeremiah that we just learned about a few minutes ago, the church lives in exile. This planet earth, these people, these neighborhoods, these workplaces, I don't need to tell you this. Most people are lost. They do not treasure Jesus with their lives. They do not care about Jesus who came and died on the cross for their sins at all. Some because they don't know yet. Some because they have rejected Jesus and chosen to be their own king on their own throne. But my question today is do you feel this in your life? When you wake up, when you go places, do you feel the contrast of the marvelous light versus the darkness? Rivers and I went to the movies last night. And uh, when you go to the movies, 
um, at night, it's, I think it's really different than during the day, right? Because when you go to the movies during the day, you, you kind of start, it's just normal day, 2 p.m., you know, you're just going to go see a show. I'm sure all of us do this all the time, <laughs> right? Right. You go see a show, and you go, and, 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 and you get your movie, and you walk into the first space, right? And it's, there's popcorn smells and arcades and lights and stuff. But then you go to, like, another hallway. It's a little darker, right? Then you go to another hallway. It's even, like, darker. You know, your, your eyes are kind of adjusting. And then you go into the theater, and it's kind of dark, you know? And then they turn the lights off for the movie, and it's, like, pitch black, except for the screen. Right? That, that's, that's the normal progression. And then the movie's over, right? And the big, like, loud music is the credits. The first credit song's, like, upbeat, like a dance song. So you and your kids go and dance at the stage, you know, by the screen. That's all of us, right? So we're dancing, and then the slow song comes on and makes you leave, you know? So you're like, okay, let's go, kids. So you leave, right? And then the lights start getting a little brighter, right? You go to the first hallway, and then the second hallway, and the bathroom's, like, way too bright, you know? Then you, you kind of talk amongst your friends about the movie for a second, and then there's the row of doors, right? And you're like, all right, let's go outside. And it's like, because it's like four o'clock in the afternoon, and you're like, what happened? Did I go back in time? Your mind does not understand what just happened. This is where I'm going. You're like, what was all that about, right? Where am I going with this? Well, we've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light. What was this darkness that Peter's speaking about? Well, it's a life without the marvelous light, without seeing the brokenness of the world, the trash of the world. Everything that's not done of faith in this world, which the Bible calls sin. There's a lot of things that go on in this world that, that is not pursuing God. And as a person who lives in the marvelous light of the sun, experiences, say, dark movie theaters, it's kind of nasty. You ever gone back in because you forgot your jacket or something and all the lights are on? It's nasty in there. You're like, keep the lights off. I do not want to see that theater. But that's what a Christian experiences when you live your life in the sun. You walk places and it's the movie theater with the lights on. There is just sticky stuff. You just kind of want to go back, but you can't. Because you've been redeemed. You've been given new eyes. We sang this today. God, show us where you want us to go. Give us eyes to see what you see. And there's brokenness all around. And then you have a life that has a mission. Because you're like, I need a broom and a dustpan right now. Because, dude, this is a lot of stuff to clean up. But if you live in the darkness... And your eyes are dilated to where you can't see the bright sun. Then the world's fine. All the shows on Netflix are fine. They're on Netflix. It's just Netflix. It's all fine. No. There is brokenness everywhere. And my hope for you 
is as we talk about this week after week in our discipleship groups, in our neighborhood groups, that you will experience what it means to have your eyes open more and more to people around you that are far from God, but they could be citizens. And you might feel more and more that you're an alien and a stranger, and that's kind of good because you're more alien than you think you are. But as the sun shines more and more bright, you'll see more and more mess. You'll have more and more mission for God. So point number four, kingdom citizens should live for God's mission. Earlier I spoke of putting God on display. How do we do that? How do we know God and enjoy him and even more than that, how do we help others know him and enjoy him with us? Well, there's some directives in this passage. In verse 11, Peter says this, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Peter's saying this, fight against sin. Fight against the echoes of the darkness of your past. Friends, if you're a kingdom citizen, you've been set free. Do not give those things authority in your life. We must rest in the grace of Jesus and that that will give us the strength to seek holiness. And friends, here's the best news of all. As kingdom citizens who forget often who we are, we can repent. We can turn from the old ways and walk towards Jesus and rest in his forgiveness that's as far where he puts our sins as far as from the east is from the west. Jesus has paid for all those sins. Amen? Secondly, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This is hard. This is hard. Do you live with honor in all the environments of your life or just within your Christian circles. Peter's telling the church to have moral, ethical, integrity-filled lives, especially towards the outsiders because there's a mission involved. Verse 12 also says, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is weightiness. And as a, as a guy, a friend of, of you guys, I fight sin daily alongside of you. This helps me fight sin. Knowing that God's glory is at stake. That my life, that my words, that my conduct actually can affect other people's view of God. Maybe that will help you as well. Sometimes you maybe don't care about yourself as much as you care about somebody else, though both are very important. I've shared today that God's people have a mission, that you have a mission. It's to point others to glorify God so they may know Him and enjoy Him and lift him up and display him. We are to understand that we're living as exiles and how important it is for us to fight sin 
live honorable lives, and speak and act in a way that others, then they can start a relationship with Jesus as we have. Remember that Jeremiah 29 passage I read earlier? There's more to say. I'm going to close with this. Jeremiah 29, 11. This may be familiar for some of you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places which I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's hope for every person that you know that doesn't know God. God creates all people in his image. And many of them are hiding. And God wants to go to them through your lives and through your relationships so that they can see God who wants to bring them back. Let's pray. Jesus, I just ask that you would continue to change our hearts, that we would care more for you, that we would love you and enjoy you and get to know you and build our relationship with you. And that would send us out to love others. Father, as a church, our hope is to grow in our love for you and our neighbors together. May we be a church that lives alongside one another, that supports one another, so that people will see our good deeds. People will hear the gospel from our mouths, and people will fall in love with you. It's in your name. Amen.